Let's go to Yahweh in prayer. Father, we come before you. We thank you for the blessings of this day. We thank you for those seven who were immersed into the name of your son. We pray that you'd be with them, especially today, that you would see them through. And, and if um, Satan would attack and try, that you would, that you would give them courage and strength to withstand Satan and his evil ways. Father, we thank you and we give you all praise. We praise you for those gathered here, those who came from afar. We praise you for those watching online throughout this world. Father Yahweh, we give you all glory, recognizing that all good things come from you. And we ask all this in Yahshua's beloved name. Hallelujah. You all may be seated. So I will warn you, I'm struggling just a little bit with allergies the uh, last uh, few days. It's that time of year again. So I'd um, like to, again, congratulate those who were immersed today, seven. And that was quite the, uh, quite the wonderful thing to witness. And uh, six in our water basin and one in our pond, which that was quite the adventure. First time in the pond, maybe the last, who knows. <laughs> like to welcome everybody as uh, non-locals come from afar. We have folks from uh, we're California to New York and uh, all the way up to Michigan and, and I don't know, if Texas maybe? I don't know, Texas, Alabama. That's, that's where it works. That works. That's the South Pennsylvania. So we got people all, all over the country and like to um, welcome all those here and also extend a welcome to those online. And um, also, as uh, Brother Jose uh, already warned you, yeah, I will be doing a quiz at the end. I made this one just a little bit harder. I'm not going to be emphasizing the words, by the way, today, so you're just going to have to write down or pay attention or just, if you have one of those photographic memories, you just remember what was said. Okay, well, my message uh, today is entitled Revelation, the Second Exodus. I thought that was kind of fitting for the uh, time. Oh, by the way, I wanted to remind everybody, in case uh, you did not know, especially those online, uh, Passover today or tonight is 7.30 p.m. Central Time, um, so we'll be doing that here. And uh, we will be broadcasting, and we will be rebroadcasting uh, re that if you're in a different time zone. So um, we'd encourage you to join us online or, or certainly join us here in person if you're here. You know, we find many parallels between the books of Exodus and Revelation. And I believe many of these parallels really help us understand prophecy and what is to come. So in this message, I want to focus on some of those key parallels the similarities we find within these two books. You know, we actually have a chart, and this really, it's not going to help you on the quiz, by the way, too much. It may a little bit, but in the Restoration Study Bible, fourth edition on page 2004, 2004, and uh, reviews many of these uh, parallels. So here's a summary of some of the things we're going to review today. So both of these books speak about two witnesses who, who boldly witness, who will boldly stand and evangelize Yahweh's truth. They both mention the land of Egypt. They both speak about many of the same plagues. We're going to see some examples of that today. They both refer to a place called the wilderness, where Yahweh took the Israelites and where he will again take his people. And they both speak about the promise of a kingdom of priests. Now, there's a few other things. I had to take a few things out of this message so that we could fit it within the uh, allotted, allotted time. Now, we're going to review each one of these points, but I want to spend a few more minutes, some more time focused on this concept of Yahweh's people being taken out into the wilderness. I believe that this is especially important during this time, during this Passover season. Because I think there's indication to show that this will happen during this time. We'll talk more about that as we go through this message. Again, I believe that this one point may offer prophetic insight into what is to come. Now, Solomon says something really intriguing. Solomon in, in uh, Ecclesiastes, and, and by the way, for those who don't know, it's one of my favorite books. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9 said, What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. So that's what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9. I'll give you a, a, a hint. You may want to remember Ecclesiastes. Just near the end, you may see that again. You know, we know that much of Yahweh's word is dual. 
We talked about that even in the Bible study this morning. Much of it is dual. You know, what has been will be done again. We see many examples of this with Daniel and, and Joshua, what he prophesied. You know, we know, for instance, both Daniel and Joshua both spoke about this abomination of desolation, I believe was fulfilled once by Antiochus Epiphanes and will be fulfilled again by the man of sin, as the Messiah explained. Now, why is this important or shows the prophetic nature of Yahweh's word? You know, as I've already mentioned, we see many similarities between Exodus and Revelation, these two books. And I believe both provides prophetic insight of what is to come, because again, what has been will be again. Now, the first similarity I want to really focus on today is two witnesses. We find two witnesses in both Exodus and Revelation. I want to start with Exodus 4, 10 through 17. It says there, And Moses said unto Yahweh, O Yahweh, I am not eloquent. You know, it's amazing because Yahweh called Moses, and we see here Moses very hesitant, did not want to um, accept the call. Goes on to explain why he's not the man for the job. He says, Neither heretofore nor since hast spoken unto thy servant. He says, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. And Yahweh said unto him, who hath made man's mouth? Or who makes the dumb or deaf or the seeing or the blind? Have not I, Yahweh? You know, that's a lesson just right there, that Yahweh can do all things. All things are from our Father in heaven. He says, now therefore go and I will be with your mouth. And teach thee what thou shalt say. And he said, O Yahweh, send, I pray thee, by the hand of him whom thou wilt send. And the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Moses. So we see here that Yahweh was angry with Moses because he refused. He was looking for a way out. And goes on to say here, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite thy brother? I know that he can speak well. And also, behold, he cometh forth to meet thee. And when he sees thee, he will be glad in his heart, and shall speak unto him. And put words in his mouth, and I will be with thy mouth, and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you should do. And you shall be, and he shall be thy spokesman unto the people. You know, in some ways, Aaron was kind of like Joshua is to the father, I believe. Joshua is a spokesman for the father. No man has heard or seen the father. All things that are communicated are through the son. And we find the same thing is true with Aaron, that Aaron was the one who communicated on behalf of Moses. It says, and he shall be even he shall be to thee instead of a mouth, and thou shall be to him instead of Elohim. So again, this relationship of Moses represented Elohim, and Aaron would represent the spokesman. And thou shalt take his rod in in thine hand, wherewith thou shalt do signs. I want to begin by asking why, because I think this is important, why did Yahweh choose Moses? Why did Yahweh select Moses? After all, we find here that Yahweh, or that Moses literally begged Yahweh to choose to find somebody else. He pleaded with Yahweh to find and and to select someone else. We know why, and the scripture says that Moses was was uh, more meek or more humbled than any other man. Numbers 12, verse 3 says this. It says, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. You know, one reason I point this out is that humility is so important for believers. I really believe humility is one of those things, if we don't learn to apply and live with humility, that we're not going to be found worthy. Solomon in Proverbs 16, verse 5 says, Everyone that is joined or is proud in heart is an abomination of Yahweh. Notice those words. Those who are proud are an abomination to our Father in heaven. Goes on to say, Though hand joined in hand, he shall not be unpunished. So that's why humility is so important. And this is why Yahweh chose Moses. He was a humbled man. Now, we also find here that Moses had a problem communicating. He was slow of speech because of this reason. 
who would stand against one of the greatest empires in all of history. The Egyptian empire was a vast empire. And we find that these two men would defy this great empire. They poured ten devastating plagues upon the land of Egypt. They led a group of people that numbered in the millions. Some say somewhere between two, three million to possibly as many as five or six million, depending on how you do your math and your assumptions. But we also know that they defeated the Egyptian army of the Red Sea, a task that really was beyond any two men. Now, as we know, though, these great accomplishments were, were only possible through Yahweh Sabbath, Yahweh of hosts. If not for him, this could not have happened. You know, without Yahweh, neither Moses nor Aaron could have um, did what they did. And that's another lesson for us. All that we have and all that we are is a gift from Almighty Yahweh. You know, in some ways, I believe that this is especially important today as we will approach the Passover tonight, realizing that without our Father in heaven that we are nothing, that we require and we must realize that he is the reason for all that we have. And no matter what gift or what we've accomplished or how we've succeeded in life, that Yahweh is behind that success. Now, starting in Revelation 11, verse 3, we find a parallel to what we find here in Exodus. Revelation 11, 3 through 6 says, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score or sixty days. Clothed in sackcloth. What does that sackcloth represent? Humility. Now, I believe it's sackcloth, but I believe sackcloth represents humility. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the Elohim of all the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must be in this manner killed. These have power to shut the heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. And have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. I think that was it there. Yes. You know, just as Moses and Aaron, we find here two other men, two witnesses who will prophesy, we know, for the three and a half years, three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. It says here that they will have power to stop the rain, to turn the water into blood, to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Now, consider that for just a moment. Do you see the parallels between Moses and Aaron and what we find here with these two men? Many of the same signs and wonders we find with Moses and Aaron we find here, but in greater number, greater abundance. Can you imagine if this happens in our lifetime? Two men, two men of this, of this power, two men having this kind of authority, standing and preaching the truth, witnessing, evangelizing the truth of Almighty Yahweh to all the earth. You know, just as Moses and Aaron overcame in miserable odds, we find that these two men will do the same. They're going to require, or they're going to overcome in so many ways. It says that these men will stand against all the earth. You know, Moses and Aaron, they stood against one of the greatest empires in the ancient world. But these two men, they will stand against all the earth. Every nation of this earth, every army of this earth, every challenge of this earth. These men will defy and they will overcome. And they will overcome through the power of Almighty Yahweh. You know, imagine what it would be like to be one of these two men. I don't know if you've ever considered that. You know, just imagine the weight and responsibility upon your shoulders. Knowing that you and your companion are the witnesses to all the earth. We know that like Moses and Aaron, they're going to be empowered in a big way. You know, we find two witnesses in Revelation. We find two witnesses here in the book of Revelation. What has been and will be again. So let's move on to another parallel, and that is both mention Egypt. And I think this is important, worth reviewing. Exodus 3, verse 16 says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say unto them, 
Yahweh Elohim of your fathers, the Elohim of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you, and seen that which is done to you in Egypt. Now we know how the Israelites suffered physically within their bondage of Egypt. They were forced into slave labor. You know, besides the slavery, the physical agony and the bondage that they suffered, we also know that they suffered in a, another way, and that was through their, the, the, the Egyptians' polytheistic false worship. You see, the Egyptians worshipped many, many mighty ones. And as we know, each of the ten plagues was an attack on a different Egyptian mighty one. So not only was Israel in physical bondage, they were also in spiritual bondage. They weren't able to worship Yahweh as we are able today to worship Yahweh. They were in bondage. They were in slave labor. So they were restrained from really doing what was right. You know, consider the first commandment. It says, I am Yahweh. You shall have no other mighty ones before me. This was in complete opposition to the scenario or the condition they were in. Now, the concept of monotheism. So monotheism means the worship of one mighty one. Well, this concept of monotheism was really foreign to the ancient world. And, you know, I know that for us today, polytheism is kind of foreign, isn't it? You know, this thought of many mighty ones. Um, just as this polytheism is foreign to us, monotheism was foreign to the Egyptians. In fact, if you Look into the Egyptian religion. Most scholars will say that there were more than 2,000 deities within the Egyptian pantheon. Imagine that. 2,000 deities within. Now, if, that's, if you consider that quite a few, I think uh, Buddhism or Hinduism has, they have in the millions. So um, I guess it's kind of a small number in comparison. But yeah, 2,000 deities. So again, not only were the Israelites in physical bondage, but again, they were in a culture that was diametrically opposed to the worship of Almighty Yahweh. Now we find a parallel, I believe, to this in Revelation 11. Revelation 11, 7 through 8, it says, When they shall have finished their testimony, and this is who, these are the two witnesses. It says, A beast, or the anti-Messiah, that ascends out of the bottomless pit, shall make war against them, and shall overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our master was impelled. So we know where this location is. This is speaking about the great tribulation. It's speaking about the end of the great tribulation and focusing on Jerusalem, which, as we find here, will spiritually be called Sodom and Egypt. Now think about that for just a moment. Sodom and Egypt. What does this represent? Well, I believe that there's spiritual significance here. During this time, the anti-Messiah and his false prophet will govern this city. They will govern Jerusalem. Because of this, this notable city will be spiritually defiled by the sin of these two depraved and wicked men. You know, when you think of Sodom and Egypt, what are some of the attributes that come to mind? You know, just consider this. What are some of the, what, what are some of the descriptive words that come to mind? For me, I think of things like sin, perversion, persecution, corruption, false worship, bondage. All of these words are connected to Sodom and Egypt. They describe the circumstance, the culture, the religion that we're going to find during the Great Tribulation is going to be a time of persecution, a time of, of perversion. It's going to be a time of bondage. You know, we know that at the start of the Great Tribulation, that persecution will begin for believers. We know this. You know, Scripture says it's going to be so bad that those who persecute believers are going to think that they're doing Yahweh's bidding. That's how bad things are going to get in these latter days. Now, again, we know that, that these uh, two witnesses are going to be empowered by Yahweh's Holy Spirit. They're going to be able to overcome. They're going to be able to show great signs and wonders. But as we see here, 
at the end of their ministry, at the end of the three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, they will be overcome. Now, I kind of believe, I don't know this for sure, I kind of believe they're, gonna, they're going to uh, submit. They're going to submit. I believe that if they chose to, that they could withstand whatever persecution. You know, Yahshua the Messiah, he uh, relented. He could have called down angels and relieved his curse, but he didn't. And I believe that these men will have the same power, great power. Now, one of the other striking parallels we find between these two books are the plagues between them. So I want to look at the first plague. This is in Exodus 7, verse 14. It says there, And Yahweh said unto Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. So notice that real quick. And this goes both ways. There's a lot of controversy and, and debate as to who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Did Pharaoh harden his heart or did Yahweh harden Pharaoh's heart? I can't really see both are true. So I believe that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Now, in all fairness, when you do an analysis on this, I've done it. You see about the same number of times where it says Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. But here it says Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refused. He refused to let the people go, it says. Get thee unto Egypt in the morning. Lo, he goes out into the water and thou shalt stand by the river's bank against he come. And the rod which was turned to a serpent shall thou take in thine hand. And thou shalt say unto him, Yahweh Elohim of the Hebrews hath sent me unto thee, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. And behold, hitherto thou wouldest not hear. Thus saith Yahweh, In this thou shalt know that I am Yahweh. Behold, I will smite with the rod that is in my hand upon the waters which are in the river, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that is in the river shall die, and the river shall stink. And the Egyptians shall loathe to drink the water of the river. And Yahweh spake unto Moses, saying to Aaron, Take thy rod, and stretch out thine hand upon the waters of Egypt, upon their streams, upon their rivers, and upon their ponds, and upon all their pools of water, and they may become blood, and that there may be blood throughout the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So we have here the first plague of Egypt. We find here that Moses turned the water in the river Nile into blood. You know, there's several reasons why this first plague is significant. Or number one, the river Nile was a life source for the Egyptian nation, for the Egyptian empire. You know, anybody who's studied ancient history and around the Fernal Crescent and you got to Egypt, every scholar will say, every historian will say, if not for the Egyptian or if not for the Nile River, Egypt may have never existed. You know, it's a little bit like the Gihon Spring. Without the Gihon Spring, Jerusalem would probably not be there today. The Gihon Spring gave water to Jerusalem, to a very dry place. Well, the same thing was true for the Nile River. Without the river, or Nile River, there may be no Egypt. You know, so from this perspective, this plague was devastating. Because, again, this was a life source. This, it provided water, it provided agriculture, provided nutrients for the soil, now, for Yahweh, I believe that this also served as a deeper lesson. There was a deeper lesson to be found here. You know, I mentioned that all the ten plagues was an attack on a different Egyptian deity. Some, some plagues was possibly even an attack on, on more than one. And again, I'm going to give you a hint. You may want to remember one or both of these names here. Well, the first deity was Hapi, or Happy, probably Hapi. He was the uh, spirit of the Nile. So through this attack, Yahweh was attacking this Hapi. And the other was Kun, which was a guardian of the Nile. So again, these are deities within the Egyptian pantheon. So through this first plague, Yahweh not only struck the very life source of the Egyptians, but he also focused and attacked the religion. Now we see a few other plagues like this in Revelation. Two plagues. So Revelation 8, 8 through 9 
It says, and the second angel sounded. So real quick, just, just um, we got the, the six seals, right? Or the seven seals. We have then the trumpets. And then lastly, we have the seven vials or bowls. So that's the chronological order of the different plagues we find within Revelation. And here we find the trumpet. It says, in the second angel sounded. And it was a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood. And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. So just as the river Nile, we find here that all life died. And the third part of the ships, well, I think that was cut off a little bit there. I do apologize. So we find here a very similar plague as what we found in Egypt. We see here that Yahweh will take and turn the third part of the sea. Now imagine that for just a moment. Most of this planet is water. It says here that he's going to take a third part of all the seas and turn them into blood. We're going to see something more devastating in just a few moments. This is the beginning. The third part of all seas into blood. It says here that this is going to be done by a burning mountain. You know, some say that this may be done by a massive volcano. There's a lot of speculation as how this may be done. Others, others believe that this may be uh, due to some sort of known poisonous algae, believe it or not. And um, because of this, the uh, third part of all life will also die, it says. You know, about 10 years ago, and I'm not saying this is exactly what will happen, but 10 years ago, there was a drought in Texas. And um, bacteria developed that was, um, could grow in oxygen-depleted water. And um, what happened was the water turned into blood, or t- turned red, and all life within the water died. So here's a, and this was uh, the O.C. River, or Fish Reservoir in San Angelo State Park, so here's a picture. You can see the water there. It was uh, red. Looks a lot like blood. There's uh, lots of photos if you do this, uh, Google it. But um, all the fish died within this reservoir. You know, whether it's this or something else, we know prophetically that a third part of the seas will again turn into blood or like blood. And all the life within the seas will die. So same thing as we saw in Exodus. Same thing with the river now, but much, much broader, much larger in scale. So there's one other plague of water and blood in Revelation. And again, this one is, is much more vast. So Revelation 16. Now, if you study prophecy, study Revelation, you're going to find something. And what you're going to find is that with each subsequent plagues, you're going to find that each set becomes worse. And the vials or bowls are last. And they're the worst. And it's almost a global catastrophic scale. So Revelation 16, 3 through 4 says, And the second angel poured out his vial upon the earth or upon the sea. And it became as a blood of a dead man. And every living soul died in the sea. So notice this. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of the waters, and they became blood. So what do we find here? Where again, this is a second angel, the second vial, the second bowl. Pours out his vial upon the sea. And it says every living creature dies in the sea. Every living creature dies in streams and so on and so forth. So here we find another plague that will pollute the waters, but this time on a much, much larger scale. Instead of just a third part, we find that the entire sea, it says, will be polluted with this, with this substance that will turn the sea into blood or like blood. You know, this plague will cause many, many deaths during the Great Tribulation. Just consider this. Now, I believe that this will be near the end of the Great Tribulation, but consider the devastation of all the waters in the seas turning into blood, all that was with, with, is within the sea dying as we found and as we saw in Exodus. 
You know, without water, man cannot survive. In some ways, this reminds me of what we find in Zechariah 14. Those who refuse to come up to keep tabernacles during the millennium, what is a plague? The plague is no rain. And if you have no rain, you have no crops and you die. It's going to be catastrophic on life on a global scale. Again, as we saw in the book of Ecclesiastes, what has been will be again. So many of the plagues that we find within Exodus, we also find within the book of Revelation. I'm going to look at another plague we find, this time in Exodus 9, 8 through 11. It says, And Yahweh said unto Moses and unto Aaron, Take to you handfuls of ashes of the furnace, and let Moses sprinkle it toward the heaven in the sight of Pharaoh. And it shall become small dust in all the land of Egypt. And it shall be a boil breaking forth with blains upon men and upon beasts throughout all the land of Egypt. And they took ashes of the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses sprinkled it up toward heaven. And it became a boil breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils was upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. According to the JPS Torah commentary, it says that these boils were some sort of type of anthrax. The Hebrew for the boil is shakin, means to burn as an inflammation. So this was the plague that, again, Yahweh poured. And we find here it wasn't only the Egyptians. It was upon their beasts, upon their animals. They developed these boils, these, these inflammations that burned. Now, according to the Companion Bible, these ashes could have come from altars that were used for human sacrifice and offered to the deity of Typhoon. So we find again that this plague was likely an attack on an Egyptian deity. Yahweh wanted more than simply to attack the Egyptian people, but he wanted to show that he was superior to the Egyptian religion. So again, every devastating plague we find within the word was an attack on some sort of Egyptian deity. And here we find that this was more than likely the deity of Typhoon. Notice here that not even the magicians could mimic this. You know, the magicians could mimic and, and do and replicate some of the plagues that Moses and Aaron did, but not this one. They were unable to replicate this plague. They too had the boils. They too had these inflammations that burned. Yahweh again wanted to show that he was a mighty one, that beyond him there was no other, as we find within the word. Now we find, a, again, in the book of Revelation, something very similar to this. It says, in the first went, now Revelation 16, this is what? Revelation 16 is a passage of the vials or the bowls. Real easy to remember, it's one chapter. One chapter contains all the vials and the bowls. So it says, the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth. And there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them that which worshipped his image. So we see here that, again, like the Egyptians, we find this plague of boils, of boils at the end of this age. Now, the word sore is from the Greek helos, helos. Strong's defines this as an ulcer, some sort of boil or plague. I believe it may be very similar to what we saw in Exodus, this inflammation, you know, we also see here that as the uh, plague of boils was only poured upon the Egyptians, the same will be true in the, at the end of this age. It says that this, these boils, these sores, were poured upon those who worshipped the beast, who received the mark of the beast. This also means that those who receive Yahweh's name, that they're going to be exempt from these plagues. They're going to be exempt. You know, like the Israelites of old, they will be free from these plagues that Yahweh pours out upon mankind. You know, scholarship generally says that the first four, four plagues of Egypt, everybody had to go through. 
The Egyptians went through it. The Israelites went through it. But after that, the Israelites were exempt. For instance, we know that within the Egyptian camp or kingdom or lands, there was darkness. But in Goshen, there was light. So they were exempt. You know, we see this. I'm not going to turn there, but I don't have a slide for this. But in Revelation 7, we find there that Yahweh commands his angels, it says, to hold back the winds, to hold back the plagues, until he has, he has sealed the servants of his saints with his name. You see, we're going to have to go through some plagues. Some plagues. The tribulation is seven years. The great tribulation is three and a half years. I believe that we're going to have to go through some plagues during that first part. But then after the first part, we find that Yahweh, when Yahweh begins pouring out his plagues upon mankind, we find in Scripture that it says that he tells his angels to seal his servants. And we know that that seal is Yahweh's name. As far as plagues go, Exodus plague in common. I think this is the last one we're going to review as far as plagues go. Exodus 10, 21 through 23. And Yahweh said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt. Three days, three days, they saw not one another, neither rose. So notice, it says, neither rose he from his place for three days. You know, just consider what that means. Standing or sitting in the same place for three days. It was so intense. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. So again, Israel was exempt. But we find here that Yahweh poured this on the Egyptians. So this is a plague of darkness. You know, one of the descriptions that really stands out here for me is where it says that this could be felt. Have you ever been in a place where you could feel the darkness? Have you ever been in a situation where you, where, where you could literally feel the darkness? You know, many years ago, I don't know if anybody's here. Anybody here from our feast in Lebanon, Missouri? I think it was like second or third feast where my wife and my in-laws there. I'm glad you were there. I don't know if anybody was there. Oh, Jenna was there. Oh, you were a baby. That's right. You didn't go, though. You weren't allowed. So this was a real cave, by the way. I would never do it again. I'm too old to do this ever again. But it was a real cave. You walk into this cave, and it was like, you walk in, it's a really big cavern, and everybody's saying, this is great. And you walk about 20, 30 feet, and they take a flashlight, and they point up to the, the ceiling, and there's a hole about this big. And so that's the entrance. And it went downhill from there. You know, there was walls like this. It was really, really bad. No safety nets. Cl uh, edges, you know, you have this much, and then you fall down 30 feet. Yeah, it was really unsafe. I don't know what they were thinking. But anyway, we got to the end, and we all made it out alive. So that's the good news. But several of us, we went all the way back to this final room. And um, they said, shut your lights off. So we all shut our lights off. And I mean, it, there was nothing. It was pitch black, intense. And uh, that's what I think of when, when, when it says here, this, uh, the darkness could be filled. You could, you could almost feel the dark. It was so intense. It was so dark. I mean, you could put your hand here and th there was nothing. No light. No light. Well, that's what we see here. No light. And I believe that this kind of darkness that Yahweh inflicted the Egyptians with. You know, try to imagine again, you know, being in one location for three days. You know, how do you eat? How do you or use a restroom? What do you, how do you function for three days? Not being able to move. Now, like the other plagues, I believe that this plague too was an attack on an Egyptian deity. Can anybody think of which deity this would be an attack on? What sun, sun, the deity of the sun, Ra. More than likely, this was an attack on Ra. Yahweh wanted to show that he was superior to Ra's. He was superior to all the other Egyptian deities of that empire. 
Now we, again, see a, something like this, very similar to this in Revelation. Revelation 16. Revelation 16 is a chapter of what? The vial or the bowls. It depends on the translation. Some say vial, some say bowls. But anyway, Revelation 16, 10 through 11 says, And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seed of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues for pain. So notice, this was painful darkness. And blasphemed, it says, the Elohim of heaven because of their pains and their sores, because of the other plagues before this. They were in really bad shape for defying Yahweh. And they could do nothing. But they blasphemed the Elohim of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And they repented not. They repented not of their deeds. You know, just as the plague of darkness in Egypt, we find here a similar plague in the book of Revelation. It says here that this plague was poured out upon the throne of the beast and upon his kingdom. And I believe that just like the Israelites, that Yahweh's people will receive light. But where the beast is and those who worship the beast, it says that there's going to be darkness over the land. Now, the word darkness comes from the Greek skudo, means obscure or to blind. So this isn't a mild darkness. This is a blinding darkness. Again, just like we went into that cave and we shut off our lights. And was, there was nothing to be seen. You, you could not see your hand this close. There was nothing. There was no light. We find that this will be the case during this plague. That Yahweh will literally remove all light. That there's going to be this intense darkness upon the beast. And upon his kingdom. And upon those who worship the beast. You know it says here that when this happens. That they will curse. They will blaspheme Yahweh. It also says here that they will not repent. You know, you would think, you would think, going through all of these things, going through the boils, going through the sores, going through the pain, going through the darkness, you would think that at some point they would repent, but they don't repent. Why do you suppose they don't repent? Or I believe they don't repent because they are reprobate, which I believe explains a lot of what we see in this nation today. You know, some people, not to get off course, but some people, they, they look at what we're seeing in this nation, what is happening in this nation, and just see utter nonsense and depravity and abominable behaviors. And how so many view this as normal. Where I don't care what you believe, there's two genders. There's male and there's female. There's differences between the two. Abomination or homosexuality is an abomination. Murder is, is, is horrible. And yet so many people, they see these things as, as normal. You know, we're the odd ones. I believe that these people are reprobates. And that is why Yahweh has given them over to a mind that is incapable of knowing right from wrong. And we see that this is going to be even worse during this time. Going through all of this, we find again that they're still going to curse Yahweh. They're going to re- refuse to repent. They're going to defy him even more. Again, reprobate. I want to transition now to one of the most important parallels I believe we find between these two books. This is the parallel of Yahweh taking his people out into a place of a refuge or wilderness. So let's begin. I'm going to set the stage a little bit more with this one than the others. So Exodus 5, 1 through 2 says, And afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith Yahweh Elohim of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not Yahweh, neither will I let Israel go. He would know Yahweh soon enough. You know, Moses here goes to Pharaoh. He's asking for Pharaoh to let his people go. Why? So that they can hold a feast. They can hold a feast in the wilderness. Now, there's two points I want to bring out here. Number one, Moses is planning to keep a feast. You know, keep in mind that this was prior to Sinai. This was prior to the giving of the law. And yet we find scripture speaking about Yahweh, that the Israelites going out to worship Yahweh in the wilderness to keep a feast. You see, the feast days are not something new 
with Exodus or with the giving of the law of Sinai. These days were established within the word. They were doing these days, I believe. We find evidence here. Again, prior to Sinai. So again, the feast days existed prior to the giving of the law. The second thing I want to point out here is where they were going. So where did Moses tell Pharaoh that they were going? Where it says that they were going into the wilderness, into the wilderness to worship Yahweh. You know, this is important for for many, many reasons. We find such a strong parallel with this and what we find in Revelation Now, when did the Israelites physically leave the Egyptians? Does anybody know when they physically left the Egyptians? What what day was it? It was the 15th of Abib. So Numbers 33, verse 3 says they left on the 15th day of Abib. What is the 15th day of Abib? It's the first day of unleavened bread. So they left on the first day of unleavened bread. Keep all this in mind when we turn to Revelation. Now before that, though, I want to look at one more passage. Exodus 19, verse 4, says this. It says, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Notice the language here. Yahweh is describing how he brought the Israelites out of Egypt. So, from this passage, how was this done? How did Yahweh take his people out of Egypt? Where it says that this was done with the wings of an eagle. The wings of an eagle. So I want to remind you two things. Keep in mind these two things. Number one, Yahweh brought Israel out where? Into the wilderness. And how? Through the wings of an eagle. And when did this happen? When did this journey begin? On the 15th day of Abib. Wilderness, wings of an eagle, 15th day of Abib. And with all that, let's turn to Revelation 12. Revelation 12 through 14. says there, And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time and times. Notice that's the plural, times. And a half a time from the face of the serpent. So what do we find here? We find that this woman is taken out where? It says this woman is taken out into the wilderness. How? It says on the wings, two wings of the great eagle. Now remind me, what did we find in Exodus? So we found that the Israelites were taking out into the wilderness by the wings of an eagle. Again, what do we find here? Same thing. This woman will be brought out by the wings of an eagle into the wilderness. You know, do you see the similarity between what we find in Exodus and what we find here? The language is almost verbatim. Now, before we go on, let's talk about this woman for just a moment. What does this woman represent? Or I believe that this woman represents believers in the Messiah. It represents those believers in the Messiah. Some say say spiritual Israel, some say assembly. But it represents those believers in the Messiah, both Jews and Gentiles. You know, so just as Yahweh took Israel out into the wilderness with the wings of an eagle, we find here that he's going to do the same thing. He's going to do the same thing in the Great Tribulation. It says time, times, and a half a time. Time, one year, times, two years, half a time, half a year, three and a half years. So for the latter part of the tribulation, the last part of the tribulation, the great tribulation, we find that Yahweh is going to take his people out. And he's going to bring them into a place of refuge, bring them into the wilderness for the three and a half years, again, of the great tribulation. Now, it also says here that he's going to nourish them. What does this mean, nourish them? Well, this word comes from the Greek trepho, trepho. And in the Strong's, it defines this as to nourish, to uh, to support, to feed, to fatten, to bring up, or to nurture. You know, based on this, I believe that Yahweh is going to supernaturally take his people out wherever they are. He's going to bring them into this place of refuge. 
He's going to feed them. He's going to nurse them as he did with the Israelites of old. That's what I believe based on the evidence we find here. That Yahweh is going to nourish, that he's going to supernaturally feed his people into the wilderness, in the wilderness. That he's going to pl- provide a place of refuge for them. Now, what will he nourish his people with? Or what did he nourish the people of Israel with? Manna. He nourished the people with manna. Where well, I believe that he's going to do the same thing in this, during this time, during the Great Tribulation, during this time, times and a half a time. Or where do we find evidence, though, for this? Or in Revelation 2, verse 17, it says this. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the assemblies. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. That's what it says. Those who overcome. Now, we know that these assemblies were historical assemblies. Some are a bit confused with that. These assemblies were historical assemblies in Asia Minor. But I believe that these assemblies are also prophetic in nature. They point to something greater. They are shadows of what is to come. And we find here that it says, those who overcome will receive of the hidden manna. So I believe based on this, based on everything we've read, that Yahweh is going to provide, that Yahweh is going to provide for his people with manna during this time. Now before moving on, I want to talk about one more connection we find. One more connection. You know, this is very involved. A very important connection, very significant parallel between these two books. Now we know from Exodus that Israel left Goshen when? Israel left Goshen on the 15th day of Abib, first day of the feast. Well, let's think about this for just a moment. You know, we know, number one, that many prophetic events occur and happen during when? During feast days. So many events within Yahweh's word happens on a feast day. You know, from all evidence, Yahshua will probably, we believe, come back, I believe anyway, will come back during the Feast of Trumpets. During the Feast of Trumpets. I'm not going to go into all of it, but, but I believe he's going to come back to the fe- during the Feast of Trumpets. Which occurs when? It occurs in the fall. So we know that the woman's going to be taken out into the wilderness for three and a half years before the Messiah returns. So let's count back three and a half years from the fall. When, where, where, where does this arrive? It arrives in the spring. You know, I believe very possibly that Yahweh is going to take his people out during this feast, during the, during the Feast of Love and Bread, coming up very shortly now. He's going to take them out. They're going to be gathered, and he's going to take them out, as he did with the Israelites of old, He's going to lead them to wherever the place of refuge is. And where that is, I don't know. Some say Petra. I don't really believe it's Petra. But it's somewhere. Maybe there's more than one. Maybe he has multiple places of refuge for, for you know, continent. I don't know. But he's going to take them out. And he's going to bring them to a place of refuge. He's going to feed them, I believe, with manna. And this is going to commence or begin, I believe, on this feast, this upcoming feast. I want to consider one last parallel before we open up our notes for the upcoming quiz here. So this last parallel is a kingdom of priests. It says in Exodus 19, verse 6, And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. You know, we find here that Yahweh gave a promise to the Israelites of old. Yahweh gave a promise. Now, was his promise conditional? Yes, his promise was conditional. Because Yahweh says, if you obey me, these things will happen. You see, Yahweh's promises are always conditional. We must do our part. We can't simply say, Yahweh does it all for us. You know, some people, they have this notion that no matter what they do, Yahweh's just going to do it all for them. No, it doesn't work that way. Yahweh says, if you do this, I will do that. And we know from the word that he told the Israelites, if you obey me, if you follow me, if you do what I tell you to do, he says that I'm going to give you these promises. And we find here that this promise was a kingdom of priests and a holy nation under him. Now, did this happen? Did Israel achieve this promise of a holy nation, a treasured people, a kingdom of priests? No. Because they rebelled, they sinned. You know, we, you know some people, I bring this up every so often, I just... When I heard it, I just, I don't know, I had a hard time believing it, the rationale behind it. But some will say that the Jews in Israel are not Jews today because of all the awful things they do. And they do do some awful things. It's very secular in much of Israel. 
But I ask, I say, when in Israel's history did they do what was right? Think about that for just a moment. When you look at Israel's history, they were in rebellion more than they were in compliance. After Moses died and after Joshua died and after the elders who knew Joshua, it says that people went wayward very, very quickly. And they really never recovered. I mean, once the monarchy came up and once it split in Israel with Jeroboam and Rehoboam, how many good kings did Israel have after that? Does anybody know? Zero. Literally, zero good kings. Zero good kings in the land. Now, Judah had a few good kings. But again, I probably am digressing here. So we know from a historical standpoint that they did not hold up their end of the covenant, the promise. They rebelled. Now we find a similar play, or a similar um, sign in Revelation 20, verse 6. This is, Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of Elohim and of Messiah and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now a thousand years, this is the millennium. We find here the first resurrection. You know, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, it's going to be during this time when Yahshua comes, that we're going to be changed from corruption to incorruption, from mortal to immortal. It also says here that we're going to rule and reign with the Messiah for 1,000 years. Now, I believe that this is literally speaking about 1,000 years. That after the tribulation, Yahshua is coming. He's going to reign and rule over this earth, and we're going to rule and reign with him for 1,000 years. And after that, we know that we have the great white throne judgment when all of mankind will be judged. And after that, we know that Yahweh himself will come with his holy city, New Jerusalem, and he will forever be with mankind. But here we find the millennium, and we find that those who are found worthy, those who hold true, those who do obey, that they're going to be blessed with everlasting life, they're going to be blessed with immortality, they're going to be blessed as a kingdom of priests who will reign and rule with Yahshua for one thousand years. You know, many people would assume that this promise we find here in Revelation is something only found in the New Testament. But it's not, is it? Because we also find this promise in Exodus. Yahweh told Israel that you can have all these things, that you can be a great nation, that you can be a holy nation, that you can be a priesthood unto me. But you have to obey me. You have to do it my way. You have to follow me. And, and as we know, historically, they fell short They were taken into bondage, they were dispersed, and they forfeited that promise that Yahweh gave. You know, as we saw in Ecclesiastes, this says, again, what was will be again. I believe that the parallels we see between these two books are so important, because not only do we see parallels, but I believe we see prophetic insight, we see prophetic patterns that will happen again. Again, the same plagues that we So many of the same plagues that we find in Exodus, we also find in the book of Revelation. Two witnesses who will prophesy at the end of the sage has already happened through Moses and Aaron. And just as Moses and Aaron, again, were able to show great signs and wonders and defeat and defy a great nation, we know that these two witnesses will defy this world, will defy the armies of the world. And only when they lay down their life will they be defeated. And we see so many other wonderful promises. Again, we see the promise of Yahweh taking his people out into the wilderness where he will nourish them, he will feed them for three and a half years. And then we find the promise, this last promise, that we will be a kingdom of priests. And again, all of this is based, though, on our willingness to follow Yahweh, our willingness to to comply to his word, not to deviate, but to sacrifice, to to do it his way, to go all in and not partially. You know what happens, by the way, when we're lukewarm? Does anybody know what happens? Scripture says that he's going to spew us out of his mouth, that he's going to vomit us out of it. You know, Yahweh wants it all or nothing. I've said, you know what? If we want to give a partial devotion, there's a door. You know, because frankly, you're wasting your time and you're wasting our time. If we're not willing to go all the way with his word, if we're not willing to devote everything to him we are wasting our time because he's not he's not satisfied with partial commitment he's not so we must go all the way and i think that's one of the lessons and then if we do go all the way if we if we fully 
give our lives to him, we're going to reap great, great rewards to come. So I pray that this message has been a blessing to you. pray that we've learned a few things. And again, I believe this is important because this is a foreshadowing, foreshadowing of what is to come, what has been, will be again.